0: These words from the hymn, I think, really open up the door nicely to the discussion and the topic of pursuing holiness, which really is the focus of today's message as we continue here in Hebrews 12, verse 14. Uh, Jesus, He has come to rule and reign in us, and this is specifically set forth in this portion of verse 14 that we're going to consider today. So to get us started, let's go to Hebrews 12, and I'm going to read verses 1-17, through 17, and then we're going to look specifically once again at verse 14. Hebrews 12, verses 1-17, through 17, hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of our Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and have gave them and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His holy word. I want us to first, before we enter into the topic of holiness, appreciate exactly where this exhortation once again is coming from. It's following the recognition that those who God loves, God disciples. God nurtures. God, the authorized version says, He chastens. And we've... Unpacked that in previous messages, but for the sake of where we're going today, notice 2 in verse 11 when he's doing it, it never seems to be joyful when he's doing it. It always seems to be grievous, but when it's endured by one of his sons and daughters, it always will produce, as he promises here in this text, the peaceable fruit of. Of righteousness this chastisement this enduring the chastisement this growing in God's chastisement friends listen to me carefully the text is presenting to us it is intimately it is inseparately connected to our participation in God's holiness now We dealt with verse number 10, and I'm not going to go back and do it again, but that's not talking about His incommunicable holiness that only He can possess. But the holiness that He wishes for His children to have and to possess to make them, I'm going to use a word that's going to scare you, happy. To make you happy. Far too many times we hear preachers say things like this, God cares more about your obedience, son than He does your happiness. So obey God and be holy. Right? You heard that kind of expression before? Now, there is a certain truth to that and granted pastors and preachers are usually saying that in the context of the superficial happiness that surrounds us as Western... Men and women, you know, happiness that comes from materialistic things you own, happiness that comes through relationships and emotional things that you get, you know. And if those things cause you to walk in disobedience to God's word, well, the minister is right, isn't he? God wants you to be holy, obedient to Him, following Him, rather than be happy. I think AJ kind of implied that when he was talking about the ecumenical kumbaya sometimes that we can get wrapped up in at the sacrifice of. Truth and obedience to God's Word, right? Well, in that sense, um, holiness is more important than happiness. But friends, Thomas Brooks, in a work he wrote about holiness, made a very important point that I want to share with you. That I think I, I want it to be, as we enter into this topic of holiness here in verse 14, I want it to be, uh, the umbrella because it's the umbrella that I've been kind of operating under it's the umbrella that I've been meditating on all the stuff I'm learning I've been I've been allowing this to be back in my mind and Thomas Baruch and many others with him says that happiness which indeed God wants you to be joyful God wants you to be happy as one of his sons or daughters happiness comes through holiness Happiness comes through holiness. And so, think about where we've been at in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12. Chapter 11, the recognition that we are weak as runners, that we are weak as frail... Creatures, Even after we've been converted, we can fall into ditches and apathy so forth and so on. And like a runner, hey, he encouraged us. They ran the race before you. Look at them. Look at their example as God's grace infused them with the ability to make it to the end. Follow their example. You remember that? And then he comes into chapter 12 and he starts talking about, hey, guess what? By the way, even though you're tired and even though you're weary, God's doing something in all of this. God's working in this. And it's not always joy. Sometimes it can be grievous. But listen to me, he's saying, as he's going to go into these list of exhortations, he's wanting them to understand that holiness, that enduring, that that making it unto the end, it has to be connected with the joy and the happiness that God has in store for you as one of His sons and daughters. Because without it, friends, you may not make it to the end. I mean, you may be the most miserable, depressed person in the world. Why? Because you have not fully accepted, you and I haven't fully understood what is being communicated to us, beginning in verse 14, that is a new covenant duty we outlined. And so we fumble along, and many fall off to the side. Many do not have their knees strengthened, they do not have their hands strengthened. Because they lose all happiness and all joy. This could possibly be one of the reasons why many people that are raised up in church and they're given a false understanding of holiness, they wander away. They never possess, obviously, the the, the inward work of God in their lives. But they get this false understanding of holiness and they see this is the most pathetic, grumpy, cantankerous, unjoyful society of people that on the face of the earth. Why in the world would I want to follow this? So, that's the overall context coming into this talk of holiness. This talk of holiness. We we return back to verse 14 today. And it sets forth before us something we've already noticed. Two new covenant duties. And it contains one non-negotiable warning. The two duties or pursue peace with all mankind. I'm sorry, the first of the two duties is pursue peace with all mankind. The second, pursue holiness. Some of your translations will have sanctification. Pursue sanctification. And then you see the non-negotiable warning, without which no man shall see the Lord. We spent two Lord today's messages dealing with the first duty, and I pray now that the Spirit of God will benefit us by allowing us to slowly and rightly interpret what is contained in this second duty. Now friends, um, I have never done a sermon series on holiness. But with that little brief introduction of how important it is to our joy, our happiness, our endurance, and it is clearly here in the text, a very serious duty we have as Christians, I want to take this slow. Today is going to be kind of teachy. Uh, In your sermon notes, I'm going to lay down some groundwork of what biblical holiness referred to here in verse 14 that we're to pursue, what it is not. Let's just get out of the way some wrong understandings of what biblical holiness is. And then next Sunday, uh, we'll get into explaining what it is from scripture and defining some other things. In your sermon notes, I've given you a roadmap of kind of how we're going to follow this pursuing and understanding of biblical holiness, all right? So it's going to last a a couple sermons here with the ultimate goal to bring us to a landing pad that Thomas, with Thomas Brooks, that with him we could say, yes, I get it. I totally get it. Joy and Christian happiness, it is through holiness. I understand. And when you get to that point at the end, you're going to want to pursue it. You're going to want to come back And begin to pursue the biblical holiness, the biblical sanctification that's talked about here. Because if I'm successful in bringing forth these truths in the Word of God, as men much smarter and much more trained than me have shown me, friend, you would be a fool not to want to pursue it. To not want to get back in the race of sanctification, biblical sanctification and biblical holiness. Because to do so, you're casting, you're forfeiting the very precious jewels and the rewards that Christ has given you and the blessings of being one of his sons. Well, up until this point, the inspired writer to the Hebrews, still continuing with my introduction here, has utilized great precision to teach and to clarify the superiority of the covenant that Jesus as the high priest mediates to his church. And we've learned from this epistle, haven't we? Along with early Hebrew Christians... That the participants of the new covenant, they are sinners who have been saved by grace alone and they've been called to a newness of life. The original audience, as well as us today, they were to understand this new life of faith as much more, brothers and sisters, than just some new steps of how to live, new recommendations of how to reform your life to have a better life in, in the current life you live. No, they would have understood it and hopefully we've understood it That it was calling us to much more than that. It was more than just changing old habits for new habits. No, it was really being called into a superior covenant to have a superior life. A new life. It means that. An entirely new life. And that shouldn't be surprising for us. Because the Bible represents biblical regeneration as this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God Coming into a man's soul and putting death the old man and bringing to life, birthing a new man. When we talk like this, what do we mean new? What is new? Well, for starters, all of us who have been born again, we would tell you our bodies certainly weren't new. We didn't grow in stature. We didn't grow in muscle fatigue. We didn't, you know what I'm saying, shed weight and grow hair. No, that all stayed the same. And for most of us, it's true that when we were converted, born again, made a new man, we uh, had the same, really, it, it grows, and there's testimonies in this. I would give a testimony of this. Our intellect was pretty much the same. Our responsibilities, our spheres in life and our positions in life were pretty much the same. That, that didn't change. I didn't become a Christian all of a sudden get promoted to a civil magistrate or become a Christian to get promoted to being a manager at my job. That all kind of thing. So what do we mean, what is new? Well, whatever it is, it was vitally important. It's vitally important. Because Jesus tells Nicodemus, without this newness of birth, no one will see God. No one will see God. And when we search out the scriptures, we see that what's new is, is the old man is this old uh, self-awareness. It's this old self-consciousness that is not oriented around God or Christ at all. That's It dies. The Holy Spirit slays that. He kills that. And the new man, the one that's born again, we use this Christian language... It's a new self-awareness. It's a new consciousness that an individual has. And that consciousness is intimately aware, isn't it? It's intimately connected to the Creator, our Father in Heaven, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by new man. Mostly things stay the same. But our self-awareness of who we are, who He is, what He has done, it all is new you are changed you are literally changed it's wrong to think of this newness of life that the new covenant the superiority of jesus all of this spring it's wrong to think that it's a dusty mirror and it just gets wiped off it's wrong to think that it's a dirty floor and it just gets swept and clean. No, no. The floor gets ripped out and demoed and thrown in the dumpster, hauled away and burned in an incinerator and a brand new floor's there. You don't even recognize, there's no trace of the old floor. You can't hardly really recognize it. You see, that's how transformational being born again is. There's a new self. You do not think the same way. You do not look at God. You do not look at Christ. You do not look at the things of the Lord the same way. Again and again, in many places of the Bible, this comes to the surface. 1 Peter 2.2 2 we're referred to as newborn babes. Right, That language of a new creature. Galatians 6.15 we are referred to as that. As new creatures. 1 Corinthians 5.7 we're referred to as a new lump. Ephesians 2.15 we're described as new men. John, 1 John 2.8 Not only are we new lumps, new creatures, new men, but we are doers of a new commandment. We're heirs of a new name. We're looking for a new city. You you hear all of this description of us as Christians who have come into the new covenant as being new, being different, being changed. Beloved, I labored here at the beginning of my introduction on this topic as we enter into pursuing wholeness because just like the first duty of pursuing peace with all mankind, unless one has truly experienced genuine biblical conversion, unless they've been granted the power of God's Spirit into this newness of life by which they have a new consciousness about themselves and about who He is and who they are, unless that's happened, An individual's misinterpretation or misapplication of the doctrine of holiness can become the most toxic thing to any religious system, especially that of Christianity. Especially that of Christianity. Let me say it again. If an unconverted person comes to the doctrine of holiness... Their misinterpretation and their misapplication of it can become the most destructive, toxic thing to any religious system, especially Christianity. So, praise God that He has birthed in our hearts, amen, a newness of life, a newness of life by which when that happens, you were humbled and you say, Lord, teach me. I want to know what, what is the truth. I don't want to just listen to some guy stand up and babble. I want to be taught. I want to learn. I want to know what's right, what's wrong. Because Lord, I want all that you have for me. All that you have for me. We'll see in a moment that what he has in store for you, friends, is much more than forgiveness of sins and erasing of a guilty conscience. Oh, praise God. He does give you that. But friends, he gives us liberty as well. Liberty as well. Well, this sets up nicely then us to consider what we will just do today and that is begin to properly define biblical holiness. Properly define biblical holiness by first doing what I said in my introduction, what it's not. You kind of see the roadmap map there in your handouts. Um... I reject the idea that God's people don't want to approach biblical truths this way. I reject that idea. I'd say that many times. I, I, I think that you, as we were going to see in a moment, understand what this text is saying and how important it is. And you would want to see in church history, you would want to learn church history with me and see what have been some of the wrong theologies and doctrines about holiness what have been some of the wrong applications and practices of holiness because then I I sincerely believe that you want to know that you want to walk through that you want to lay that foundation down that way when you're out in the highways and byways whether it be on the internet or whether it be talking with other Christian friends you can hear in between the lines old errors creeping up and you can be guarded by them You see, so what we're doing with the Doctrine of Holiness, what I seek for us to do together as a church, is to set the standard from Scripture of what it is. It's like they do at a bank. You know, they train the tellers. This is a, a, a real piece of currency, and this is how you detect counterfeits. So basically what we're doing today is learning how to detect counterfeits by telling you these are some of the counterfeits, and this is how they thought, this is how they practiced, so forth and so on. Well, let's admit, you see in your notes, that defining biblical holiness, taking time to understand biblical holiness, friends, it is vital. The importance of properly defining biblical holiness mentioned here I think is very self-evident. You don't need me. You don't need to consult scholars. You don't need to consult theologians to understand the seriousness that's connected to understanding biblical holiness. Why? Because you've got it right there in your Bibles. Without this, without pursuing this holiness, whatever it may be, no man shall see the Lord. And therefore, that lays a responsibility directly on your lap that you are to understand what the biblical holiness here is referring to. And that's what we get to do. Praise God. We're here gathered today to dig into history, to dig into His Word, so forth and so on, to make sure we understand as Bereans, as dividers, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, what this responsibility is. Praise God we have that benefit, brothers and sisters. In other words, it's absolutely vital. That you properly define biblical holiness here being mentioned, and furthermore, that you pursue it because if you get it wrong, or you become indifferent to this duty that's a new covenant duty to pursue it, you are placing yourself, friend, in a very precarious position. You see that in the text. I like this quote. From uh, Horatius Boner in his book that I've been working through called God's Way of Holiness. He He appreciates this emphasis that's being placed here that makes it so vital. He says, we all ought to feel a sense of responsibility after reading these words to pursue this holiness. He goes on to say, as disciples of Christ, let our pursuit be complete and consistent. Our connection with Christ, exhibiting itself in conformity unto his likeness our life, a comprehensive creed, our walk, the embodiment of all that is honest and lovely and good report. Christ's truth sanctifies as well as liberates. His wisdom purifies as well as quickens. Let us then beware of accepting Christ's liberty without His call to holiness. It's clear that the inspired writer here in verse 14, and moving onward throughout the rest of this epistle, there is an attempt, it seems, to bring up the fact that God has not just forgiven us of our sins and disobedience, but he's also calling us to a life of holiness, a life that's completely centered upon him. And as with the first duty in this verse, pursue peace with all mankind, I believe what he's doing here with this call to holiness and then the subsequent exhortations, the inspired writer is seeking to expose pious hypocrisy and prevent corruption within the church of Christ. What kind of corruption? The kind of corruption that we're going to learn about in just a moment, that has plagued the church for so many centuries. That's what he's doing here. Yes, he understands that it's a vital part to get them unto the end of the race, but also it will expose... It should prevent, it should expose and prevent and insulate them from getting tripped up in the mistakes that the Christians ended up getting tripped up in. Not all, but many, as we'll see in a moment. So that's what he's doing here by calling them to holiness. Not only is properly defining biblical holiness vital, which we see in verse 14, but friends, it can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. I say this because wrong definitions, wrong concepts, wrong ideas of biblical holiness are start have been the start of many cults. Wrong biblical definitions, wrong concepts and wrong ideas of biblical holiness has yielded many people unto the bondage of spiritual depression. Wrong definitions, concepts and practices have crippled many churches throughout the centuries with the insidious disease of religious pride and judgmentalism of others. I like to refer to it kind of like this, uh, this, this really narrow path. One of the favorite illustrations i like to use is Pilgrim's Progress. You have Christian, the main character in that parable that John Bunyan wrote and he's walking and he goes down into the valley of the shadow of death and he has to walk on this path and on both sides, you guys hear me talk like this a lot, there's these ditches and he's got to walk it carefully. He, he can't get presumptuous, he can't get lax. You see? And he can't get over fearful. He's just got to stay right there in the middle so that he can make it through the valley of the shadow of death. And friends, that illustration is exactly how we want to approach holiness. The doctrine of holiness. We have to stay on that narrow path of what the Scriptures say. And throughout the years of The Christ Church, the life of Christ Church, there's been many examples of spiritually harmful concepts and definitions of holiness that have plagued her. And this is where I want us to move now considering some of these harmful concepts and definitions of biblical holiness that has plagued the church that we ought to be aware of. These are the wrong things that define biblical holiness. As you see in your notes, As I thought about this, I think that wrong definitions and wrong concepts largely can be broken down into two categories. One category of misdefinitions and wrong concepts is theological or doctrinal. Men have went to the scriptures and they've tried to use the scriptures to come up with a theology that misses the mark of what the biblical holiness is talked about in verse 14. And then there's another category of concepts and mistakes that miss the mark of biblical holiness and that's in the areas of practice or attempting to apply biblical holiness into our lives and so that's how we're going to approach it under these two categories let's begin first with the theological or doctrinal categories of wrong definitions of biblical holiness or wrong concepts of holiness and we would go back to the medieval period of the church you see it in your notes it's known as Christian mysticism now, Christian mysticism, it's the tradition of mystical practices and mystical theology, mixing it within Christianity that concerns the preparation of the person for the consciousness of, or, as it's defined here in the dictionary I was using, the consciousness of, or the effect of a direct and transformative presence With God. So, Christian mysticism during the medieval time was concerned with attempting to help the person be prepared to come into a deeper and better consciousness and experience with God. And the medieval period, you know, you're talking around 300, really all the way up to the 900s, was wrapped up in different forms of what we call Christian mysticism, which was focused on becoming more holy in order to experience God more fully, right? And it takes on different forms. It, if, if their understanding of holiness, their theology of holiness, if that's what's driving it, then the simple means that God gave them it seem to not produce the same effect. And so they began to look at other philosophies and other practices that they could mix in with Christianity to help produce this more transcendent feeling of being connected with the Spirit of God. There's one common thread of all medieval Christian mysticism, and it was the view of potential sinless perfectionism, or sometimes referred to as complete holiness, and it's viewed as a process of ascending a ladder of sorts until you climb each rung in the ladder and each rung in the ladder uh, there's more and more obedience less and less sin and then, and then you get to a state to where you're closer to God and, and you sense and you feel closer to God. There's, I'm gonna, there was many but you see in your sermon notes I just gave you three. These are three popular understandings and Christian missionism that were practiced by many in the church. One was known as Voluntaryism. I'm just curious, how many of you have a copy of Thomas Kempis' books, The Imitation of Christ? It's a very popular Christian book. I was given to this uh, by a friend of mine, and I read it, and there's a lot of it that I thought was really good. It's very devotional. I think that's why it's so popular. Well, you don't pick up so much of it in this book, but Thomas Kempis... He, he founded his philosophy upon what's called voluntary action, which is the principle in philosophy that individuals are free to choose goals and how to achieve them within the bounds of certain societal and cultural constraints as opposed to actions that are done outside of themselves. So it's almost like Thomas Kempis took Christianity and he was saying, Dear friends, don't you, don't you get it? We can self-actualize our holiness. We, God has given us His Spirit and we can self-actualize and become closer to God. He is there waiting for you. He wants you to come to Him. You see, through voluntary actions, you can grow in His holiness and get closer to Him. And many people believe this. And they began to practice this. And, and, and you, know, you can kind of see why this would be a very heavy burden upon those who maybe don't have as much, Brother Eddie, self-actualization or, or endowed with the grace of voluntary action as perhaps you do or, or I do, right? And what happens now in the church, you have these different classes of people. you got some that are very spiritual. Why? Well, because according to Thomas Kempis, they have more of the grace of voluntary action and doing what God gave, God gave them the additional endowment of, of, of conversion than the rest, you're right. So they're more holy. Well, that's big problems right there. Big problems that there's some more holy in the church than others. Then there was another form of Christian mysticism known as Quietism. Quietism. This was promoted by you. Senior notes a monk, a Spanish Roman Catholic monk named Miguel Molinius. He was the chief representative of the religious revival known as quietinism. Millennius recommended, listen to this, absolute passivity and contemplation in total repose or rest in the Spirit. I'll say that again. He advocated for absolute passivity and just contemplation of the Spirit of God and His grace to rest, to have rest and holiness in the Spirit. Melonius taught that activity, actually, on our part. He would look at Hebrews 12.14 and the word pursue, which I believe I was being faithful. I interpreted that as a a command. It's a call to action. It's called to do something. He would say, no, 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 no. No, no. You can't take action. Because if you take action, hence the passivity of quietism, then you're disturbing where you are at already with God. And if you begin to attempt to be holy, you actually are going to forfeit what you already possess in his rest and holiness. So you simply are passive. You contemplate the goodness of God and you contemplate what he has done for you and you simply rest in the spirit. Now that sounds somewhat good and you're going to hear a little bit where some others pick that up later on in later centuries. But what would... Uh, millennials do with the scriptures that we're reading today where clearly the converted Christian is called to pursue where Paul tells the church ye through the spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh there seems to be in the New Testament repeated cause to pursue to mortify to kill to take responsibility as a Christian so if millennials is right then I just don't do anything and this holiness will come about. I will grow in holiness. Perhaps, and there's too many on the list here, you see it in your notes, there is Eastern spirituality, which began to show up around the 300s in the teachings of Macarius, a bishop of Egypt, and Ephraim Cyrus. And basically what they and many others after them did is they would take different ways Of praying, different ways of fasting, different ascetic, monasticistic practices to try to increase your holiness. And this is where the entire system in the Roman Catholic Church of the monks comes from. You know, the more you deprive yourself of the flesh, uh, and and, you know, beat your body, uh, starve yourself, be dedicated to really hard tasks and work, this will produce in you a greater spiritual man. And this comes through in many different ways now to a great deal of degree you can still pick up traces of these teachings and influence in many segments of modern day Roman Catholicism and I would argue even more too. something that came on the scene in the late 80s and early 90s still is kind of around they don't go around this by this name anymore it was the emergent church movement the emergent church movement I began when I I remember first hearing about this it's where there was these other practices that were kind of uh Definitely rooted in and found in ancient Roman Catholicism. They wanted to kind of bring them in because, you know, candles and incense and things like this. It kind of helped us to kind of get in the spiritual mood in the church. And you had evangelicals that began to practice this. To some degree, you may know this, there are some who are advocating for, through a great interest in Hebrew and Jewish um, ancient heritage and, and, and practices, they get the Christians all wrapped up and interested in, you know, what did Jesus do when he was a young man, right? What were the Jewish traditions that he uh, carried forth and what did he practice? And then you get a bunch of Western Christian evangelicals all wrapped up in understanding the bells and the smells of Judaism, and the next thing you know, they're wearing these crazy outfits and doing these crazy dances. Why, friends? It's another misapplied, misinterpretation of holiness. Now, granted, if they're just doing it because they like to dance and they're having a good time, okay, but the, the Everything that I've heard, whether it's being one for the Jews or one for Israel or whatever ministries that are focusing on that stuff and getting evangelicals to do that, they always are connecting to it a theological reason. So they're not having you over there practicing that and doing that just to have a good time. It's just a different way culturally, you know, to have a weenie roast. Well, they wouldn't have weenie roast, but you get the point, right? It's more than that, friends. It's more than that. It's a misapplied theology of holiness. They're, they're implying, just like those Judaizers in, Gal, in the Galatian church, yeah, you have Jesus, but you just haven't quite arrived yet in holiness or drawing closer to God until you do this, this, and this. You can still see some of these practices of Christian mysticism creeping up in modern-day evangelicalism. Uh, You know, for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have people that live uh, an ascetic life dedicated to the church, dedicated to a particular regiment of rules and traditions. And through their performance, they are venerated eventually by the Pope and they're made a saint. And so they're actually put into a different class of sainthood. Why? Because they have through all these various traditions, some are more, uh, you know, perhaps dedicated to Kempis' teachings or to this guy's teaching or this monk's teaching. Uh, but the point is, is they, were, they, they sacrificially did it. And, and, and they got to the point where they've arrived at this place where they are holy. They have become holy and the Pope venerates them as a saint. And then they're even encouraged. They're so holy and so separate. They're even encouraged. Roman Catholics say they don't pray to them. Even though sometimes you read things and you think, I don't know how you're saying you're not praying to them, these saints, but they definitely all say you're to pray with them. You're to seek them to help you. Why? Because they're holy. You see? They have arrived at a status of holiness. And so then it's going to help you, poor little Christian, and your feeble, honest, sincere cries unto your Heavenly Father. It's going to help them come out that way, but that's the implication. It's going to help you get your prayers heard, right? That's, that's not the holiness. None of this stuff that we just talked about through these different philosophies and these different practices that are connected with all this other stuff, especially Eastern mysticism or ancient Judaism, none of that is the holiness talked about in verse 14. So anytime that comes up on your radar, you got people making you feel like you've got to be, be involved with practice, learn more. Oh, you poor Christian, you don't, you don't know that? Oh, where have you been? You know? And you got to, now you gotta learn a whole encyclopedia of Jewish history or something, you know what I'm saying? If you get any feeling or vibe that you're less, you haven't, you know, you're not as holy because of that, you're thinking wrong about biblical holiness. Don't go there. I would represent a second theological, and there's a lot I think you could do, but these are these are the prominent ones through church history. The second mistaken definition of biblical holiness. That's being referred to in verse 14 comes not from the ancient church, which evolved eventually around the year 1100 1200 into Roman Catholicism. It's not from the Christian mysticism of the ancient church, visible church on the earth. It comes from and after the Reformation, from the Protestants. And I, you've seen your sermon notes I'm identifying this as complete sanctification, the doctrine of complete sanctification. If you want to hear earful, about this, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a complete earful. Grizz can give you a whole entire earful. He used to be a minister in this. Um, enough said. He'll tell you about the rest. I'm not going to go there. But he, he, you know, he fought against this and the church came hard against him where he was at for teaching the truth of Scripture against this view. Well, this view originates with John Wesley. This idea of complete sanctification or complete perfectionism or sinless perfectionism. John Wesley Children, he is the founder of the United Methodist Church Movement and all of its various splinter groups. You guys have heard of the Primitive Methodist Church. This church building we're in right now, this used to be a Bible Holiness Church. That's a splinter group of Methodism. Uh, There's the Methodist Holiness Church. So all of these kind of originated with this man, John Wesley, who advocated uh, for this complete sanctification. Now, to be fair... It's hotly debated amongst their own tradition if John Wesley himself ever envisioned or taught that there was a stage in a Christian's life where one would arrive at complete perfection or complete holiness and can never go any further in his sanctification. That's debated in that. And I just connected eyes with Tyler. You, I think, have done a lot of research on this as well. Kind of, yeah, because you guys kind of were connected to a holiness church. Um, they, they debate within themselves whether John Wesley ever advocated that. Uh, they, they debate amongst themselves if he ever really truly taught that there was some sort of secondary spiritual work that would take place after initial conversion that would result as a fruit of justification making someone so enraptured and so connected with Christ that they are so full of the love of Christ and the love of God that they actually could live a life that was sinless. At times, and I've read through some of John Wesley's writings, at times, he seems to me to advocate that. He seems to me to write and say that. That there is an understanding he would preach this, pursue holiness, and give you the idea that your goal is to, now that you've been born again, to achieve this perfection, this complete sanctification, through which all you do is love God and that love emanates from you. And in so much as you do that, you can possibly in this life achieve complete sinlessness in this life. And then other times you read John Wesley, and he reads like he's advocating for what we commonly call and I think is biblical, progressive sanctification, which it's a process. It takes time. And you're never going to be complete in your sanctification until you know, the great consummation. Um, John Wesley kind of speaks out of both sides of his mouth sometimes. And so that's why you have the different splinter groups in the Methodist movement. Some advocate the complete perfectionism. Aspect and some like uh, Asbury. Asbury was in the news. That was a, that's the the college or the the seminary down in Kentucky. Remember the revi- the so called revival, or I'll just leave that for you guys to decide. That right? That was going on. You remember that Asbury? They take more of the John Wesley. He taught more progressive sanctification, so they take more of the common evangelical approach to his teachings on that. But nevertheless, nevertheless, John Wesley. In the book he wrote, a plain account of Christian perfection in 1767, I did run across where he says that he had no doubt in his mind that he had been that he has been with and has spent time with other believers who were filled quote entirely with the pure love of God that he witnessed their sinless lives. That's not what we're talking about in verse 14. And and I'll see that, and we'll do that next Sunday. Okay. Again, I'm just laying down a foundation of what's not being talked about in verse 14. Um, verse 14 is not telling you to pursue sinless perfectionism, or even let's let's say this. And I'll say that I'm going to pick this up more later in the second message. But, but, but let me. This is very really easy for you to see in the text. It's not even advocating that uh, you have to have a super high level of sanctification. Right? Because why? Because if you don't, you will never see the Lord. And He's telling you to pursue it. The writer's already taught from chapter 1 to chapter 11 how you see the Lord. In fact, he told us many times, now that you're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, and he's laying down the doctrine of justification, remember he told us, you come boldly into the throne of grace. Why would he here at verse 14 contradict himself and say, now pursue this holiness of getting really high up on holiness over here and sanctification, because if you don't, you won't see the Lord. I know I told you to come boldly into the throne back there, but you can only do that. You can only come into the throne based upon your performance. Your holiness. No, friends, you remember what the basis was, he said? In that expounding the beautiful doctrine of salvation by faith alone and grace alone, he was saying, you come in boldly to the throne under the blood covering of Jesus Christ, who was 100% holy. So we know that that's not what's being talked about here in verse 14, because we're called to pursue it. I can't be called to pursue something that I already have, which guarantees I will be with the Lord. He's talking about something else here in verse 14. I found it very interesting, just as a side note, that a scholar by the name of Robert G. Tuttle Jr. in his doctrinal thesis at the University of Bristol, he wrote and he demonstrated the influence that Roman Catholic mysticism, which we just talked about, had on the teachings and the theology of John Wesley. You can go find that out for yourself. Do you know, here's a little bit of your own heritage and a little bit of your own history. Do you know who was one of John, Wesley, John Wesley's most heated contender and debater when he lived? It was your forefather, your spiritual forefather, John Gill. John Gill and John Wesley did this constantly. Constantly. When John Wesley came on the scene and started describing and articulating, stepping out of the, the Protestant and the Reformed Orthodoxy with this idea of complete sanctification, it was not well-received. And John Gill, you can go read their treaties back to one another, and John Gill did not mince words. He, he called John Wesley a heretic. He would call him out very severely that this is tampering with the doctrine of justification. And if you can't see how it does, you know, you, you should, because it, it really, truly does. Now, stepping away from John Wesley, we have a third category of in a misunderstanding and misapplication of holiness. And it comes also from Protestantism. And it's referred to commonly as antinomianism or hyper-grace. Now, most scholars agree that this view originates with Johannes, as you have in your sermon notes there, Agricola. He was a German Protestant reformer during the Reformation, actually, and he was a friend of Martin Luther. And Johanna, Johann, he contended that, quote, reading quoting him now, while non-Christians were still held to the Mosaic law, the moral law of God, Christians are entirely free from it being under the gospel. So, you know, he comes into the Protestant Reformation, clearly sees that justification is by faith alone. He comes to the book of Hebrews, sees that there's the new covenant, and that's through the new covenant in Christ's blood, how that we are saved, how we are guaranteed that we will go to heaven. And he he makes this deduction that the old covenant and the law of God that's connected with the old covenant has no place for the Christian. We are under this, as he says, the gospel alone. That's an oversimplification that he was making there. We've been doing it in the book of Hebrews. And yes, of course, we are not under the old conditional covenant. Do this and live. You guys know, right? We're not under that. We're under the new covenant. But the moral law of God that was used in the old covenant carries over into the new covenant Christian's life without the conditions. That's why all of you, you would want to hope and to teach your children and your families the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Because that law was given by a holy God and it's never been abrogated. Yes, the covenant has been abrogated by which you had to follow these things in order to have favor with God. But the law itself was never abrogated, friends. It's a reflection of God's holiness. So this position that Johann took here obviously sparked a disagreement between him and Martin Luther, and it led to a controversy that led these two theologians to eventually break fellowship with one another. And according to my records, Johann did apologize, didn't recant his views, but he said some things that just weren't quite charitable. And Martin Luther, to no surprise, did not return the favor. And he said, "Tell you change your view, <laughs> your teaching, then we could have fellowship. We can eat together. Well, in some modern day Christian belief systems, an antinomian is one who takes the principle of salvation by faith and divine grace to the point of asserting that the saved, or that is the Christian, is not bound or obligated to follow the moral laws contained in the, in the Ten Commandments. Antinomians, anti-law, it's Latin for that, they believe that faith alone guarantees eternal security in heaven, regardless of one's actions in this life. That's why sometimes it's referred to as hyper grace. Now, to be fair, well, let me go on here. Now, both during and after the Reformation, there would be reformed theologians and ministers whose teaching would reflect influences of Johannes, which inevitably resulted shall we say, in a less robust desire to pursue holiness. Because if you're told you know, it doesn't really matter what you do in this life, the blood of Jesus covers you and you're forgiven and you're going to heaven, that doesn't exactly uh, excite people to try to live according to the moral law of God. Uh, there's this little thing in the back in the, the head saying, oh, he just told me I got a ticket into heaven and I can just do whatever I want because I'm covered with the blood of Jesus. That's how it trickles down into the pews. Let's just be honest. That, that's, how, that's how it is. Now, in defense, because this does come out of, this did originate with and comes out of the Reformed community, and if you have not already met this, chances are you will, as you rub elbows with other people from other Reformed churches or Calvinistic circles, you will hear them kind of talk in a way that sounds like they're influenced with this teaching of Johanna, meaning that the law of God has no bearing over you. Uh, we're, we're, they use this term the law of Christ we're, we're, we're guided by the law of Christ we have Christ's spirit uh, I hear you talk sometimes as if you know, we're still obligated to obey the moral law of God and hey don't you know and they want to in, in, you know, um, enlighten you that you're not you're under grace so forth and so on and to their credit I have never heard any men who hold this position some are even my friends I have never heard them talk in a way that they give a license to lasciviousness. Never. They, in fact, some of them live what seems to be very structured and shall we say holy lives. I've never heard many say this. The problem is though, <laughs> the problem is is that I would contend that the teaching is just not biblical. It's not biblical and therefore it can result in a lascivious lifestyle for a Christian. Hear me carefully here to all my antinomian brothers who may be listening to this or someone in the church who leans this way this day. I'm not saying that anti, the antinomian understanding of the law and the role of the Christian's life necessitates a lascivious life. I'm not saying that. Just as an understanding that the moral law of God, as our confession says, and the, the Orthodox Reform Confession says, serves as a guardrail for the people of God, Just as that belief doesn't necessitate legalism, antinosism doesn't necessitate lasciviousness, carefree, just do whatever I want live, because that's not what they're saying. And a right understanding of the moral law of God in our lives doesn't necessitate legalism, but sometimes, right, proponents of both views can take it to those places. They could take it to those places. This leads perfectly then to the last section of our message today, and I've drastically ran out of time. And we're just going to have to pick it up. This is awful because it's going to be a horrible transition, but I cannot keep you here any longer, especially with the legalism aspect, because now we were going to move into practical and applicatory defects of the doctrine of holy, holiness. So let us just park it here we have theologically looked at some concepts and misunderstandings about holiness that verse 14 is not telling you to pursue. So whenever you hear those things creeping up, whenever you hear on a podcast, whenever you hear other people talking about it, or you thinking to yourself that way, run from that. Don't, don't entertain that. Uh, don't, you know, start going down that path. Um, but then next week, we're going to look at how... There has been through, I believe I was going to open them and say, before I even started talking about different practices, I think that sometimes these people, even in the first century, first couple centuries, that were practicing Christian mysticism, hear me clearly, I think that they had sincere. Desires to grow in holiness. I mean, I think they read Hebrews twelve fourteen and they said, oh, I'm to pursue holiness. I want to be closer with God. I want to be holy. They have a sincere... I think John Wesley was completely sincere. He was just sincerely wrong. But I think he really did want to grow in holiness. He really understood that there was a pathway or something that I needed to grow in. And so a lot of times, the practices and the applications of biblical holiness, it starts off with very sincere people. And in so much as it does, friends... They ought not to be mocked. They ought not to be joked about or chided or whatever, right? No, they they just have to be thought through what they're saying and what's driving their practice or why they're doing what they're doing. Is it a, a misinformed, a misdefinition of holiness? Is that what it is? Is it a blind tradition that's been received? Or are they doing it out of a sincere heart and therefore their practice in as much as it's not sinful is none of your business or none of my business. right? And we'll get into that more next week as we define what are some wrong concepts about holiness through practices that the church has applied. And then next week we'll start getting into what is the right definition of biblical holiness in verse 14. Thank you for being patient. These kind of messages are very teachy. they got to go through this groundwork to lay it down. But I believe, brothers and sisters, that you want to know this and you want to have it. That way, when you come to an understanding of biblical holiness from Scripture, you say, yep, went through that, know that. I'm not going to accept that, not going to accept that. I know where that origin comes from and it's not healthy for me, so I'm staying away from that. But it ought to excite you. Remember what I said, as Thomas Brooks says, to, to want us to Re-engage to pursue what biblical holiness is to receive what God's blessings have in store for us. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Holy Father, O God, we come before thee, and God, we thank Thee that you have given us your word. It is, Lord, the light for our pathway that which we walk and travel as your sons and daughters, as pilgrims, Lord. here as sojourners traveling through and navigating through, Lord, this life on this side of glory. And Lord, we pray, especially as we walk away from this message as just an introduction to the concept of holiness that's oftentimes repeated in your Bible. That we are seeing clearly in verse 14, we are called to pursue. And we pray, God, that we would be students and we would be most importantly learners of the past, that we would not make the same mistakes, that God we would be careful Bereans, and that we would walk in a balanced way through such a vitally important doctrine that affects, oh God, not only our ability to run this race that you've called us to run, but God to run it with joy and to run it with true happiness in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would, yes, help us to understand what holiness is but help us to understand what happiness with holiness looks like. And we trust that you will do this, Lord, in your own time and in your own way in the subsequent messages. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.